This is Polyoptics. Shining a light on the theater of politics. And now, from New York, here's Josh King. Thanks for joining us from London this week as we pull back the curtain West End instead of Broadway on events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, on either side of the Atlantic, the only show of its kind on the air today, and it's only on POTUS. This week, a talk with one of my favorite journalists ever. Mark Bowden, author, of course, of Black Hawk Down, and now The Finish, The Killing of Osama Bin Laden, which has a whopper of an excerpt in the November issue of Vanity Fair called The Hunt for Geronimo. There's no one better than Bowden pursuing this kind of story. Then, as Matt Lauer would say, on a lighter note, it's Nathaniel Stein of The New Yorker. His humor jumps off the page, but it was an analytical turn on Bill Clinton that recently caught my eye. Conversations with a teleprompter, it was called, and it raised an issue that's gone largely unnoticed this cycle. We'll talk about it. Then, with under three weeks to go in our great national drama, we'll check in with Kevin Sully Sullivan, White House Communications Director under George W. Bush. He said Paul Ryan had beat Joe Biden in Kentucky. How does he think Romney fared at Hofstra? And will Obama bring his A-game to the final debate Monday night in Boca Raton? But first, I'm honored to welcome to our show Mark Bowden. He set a new standard of war reporting with Black Hawk Down. You know, there's a shelf on my library I reserve for the best narrative nonfiction. It includes Sebastian Younger, William Languish, Michael Lewis, and my guest today, Mark Bowden. The Finish is now available in bookstores and online, and a heaping excerpt is in the pages of Vanity Fair. Welcome, O oh Lord of the Movie Ready Bestseller, to Polyoptics. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you that, for that generous introduction, Josh. Well, so, Mark, uh, because I've been following you since I was just a kid in the White House, 1993, General William Garrison, Mogadishu, 2011, Admiral Bill McRaven, Abbottabad. You're an expert on both military men, both tactical scenarios, both political backdrops. The times are different, the tools are different, but contrast both for our listeners. Well, I think, you know, you had the best of the best in 1993 when uh, General Garrison was commanding Delta Force in uh, Mogadishu. And I think the, you know, the tools that he was working with were the best uh, that the military had to offer at that time. And certainly the men involved. And in fact, some of the same men, although I don't think any went on this uh, bin Laden raid who were involved in the uh, mission in Mogadishu, some of the tactical people around them are the same. Uh, they've evolved and grown and have obviously had a tremendous amount of experience. I think the one contrast I would make is that Admiral uh, McRaven, who's very much cut from the mold of uh, General Garrison, is someone who, because the United States has been at war, for the past 10 years has had a great deal more practical experience in conducting these raids and in combat than frankly almost any uh, special operations commander in our history. Mark, there's a, a picture you paint uh, of a meeting with uh, President Obama uh, in the Situation Room and you use the, uh, the phrase, uh, the woodshed. And at the conclusion of it, he points to four individuals. He says, you, 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 and you, up to my office. What happened uh, when President Obama brought those guys up to the Oval? Well, he was pointing to his chief um, intelligence, uh, his intelligence chiefs, and he had, it was a new administration. They'd been in office for 
a couple of months, and uh, these guys were settling into their jobs. Uh, he huddled them in the Oval Office, and he said, look, uh, I think that we've basically lost the trail on Osama bin Laden, and I want to emphasize that this is the number one priority for me, and I want you to make it a number one priority. And I think the significant thing he did was demand monthly progress reports. And in any large organization, uh, when you have to file a monthly progress report, I don't think anybody wants to file a progress report showing no progress. So he definitely uh, did everything he could as the first customer to really lean on his agencies to make headway in what he considered to be uh, his first priority uh, in national defense. Is, was the absence of a demand of, for monthly progress by President Bush what might have had the trail grow cold uh, during the Bush years? I mean, my, my impression, Mark, and just give us everything you have in your reporting, is that you know, the world is obviously a very big place, but the mountains of Afghanistan and Pakistan, you know, is a limited area that could be covered by satellites and drones. Did we did we get at ever close to OBL after Tora Bora? Never. And he, he had vanished. And in fact, you know, when I spoke to the CIA analysts who've work, who worked on this for almost a decade, uh, they said that they had pretty much concluded uh, by, say, 2005 that uh, bin Laden was not hiding in the tribal areas of Pakistan, although that continued to be the narrative that we heard publicly uh they felt if he had been in the, that part of pakistan there would have been some whiff of him somewhere you know someone would have recognized him or they would have gotten a hint of uh him being in that region and when they didn't they pretty much concluded that he had left uh they had no idea at that point where he was and to go back to your earlier question i i do think that uh it has an effect when the president is demanding monthly progress reports, certainly. But I wouldn't say that efforts within the CIA uh, to find bin Laden had ever really flagged. Um, I think that, you know, they were, they had considered this to be a kind of an obsession for quite a long time. And the truth is, it was just an extremely difficult task. Uh, Bin Laden did just about everything right if you want to hide in the uh, in the modern world which is completely sever all connection to any sort of uh anything in the uh, global telecommunications link and he cut off communication with everyone in his past or everyone around him uh, he holed up in the upper two floors of a house and basically never left uh the only communication he had was through these long letters that he was writing in, those were delivered through these courier systems. And the courier network, it turns out, uh, was the weak link. You paint a picture, Mark, of what had been regarded within the agency as the pacer, which has has to be the broadest use of that term since the demise of American Motors. But uh, <laughs> I, I wonder what, uh, what were the options that uh, Leon Panetta and Robert Gates uh, presented to President Obama once the pacer was identified and his routines were were snuffed out of of how you might go after him. Well, there were there were three. The first of which was dismissed immediately. Um, you know, one the the first option uh, was to basically bomb the compound in Abbottabad into rubble, and they, you had to take into consideration that uh, there was a chance that if Bin Laden was hiding there, he might have a bunker 
underground as Saddam Hussein had when they found him in Iraq. And so in order to land that kind of a, a blow, uh, to take out everything um, above and below ground, would have required so much ordinance that uh, it would have killed everyone on the compound, including all the women and children, obviously, and, and also others who live nearby. And uh, the president, as well as I might say, Admiral McRaven, looked at that option and just said, no, you know, we're not doing that. And no the, true proof this, of death either, right? Exactly. There would be no way of knowing who you had killed. It would, you know, as, as Admiral McRaven put it, uh, it would leave a big uh, uh, smoking hole in the middle of a Badabad, which would be, you know, a, a, a disaster from every uh, vantage point. So the existence of this pacer, uh, this tall man who walked around in uh, the garden every day at a predictable time, gave them yet another air option, which was to fire a very small missile, really a missile about the size of my forearm, which could be fired from a drone that's so small itself that it wouldn't be detectable in, in the air over Pakistan. And the advantage of doing that was obviously it risked no American personnel. It limited the destruction to the single target. Uh, if that pacer was bin Laden, then, you know, that would have been probably the cleanest and most efficient way of dispatching him. But you wouldn't know uh, whether you had hit him. Uh, you would know if you hit him or not, but you wouldn't know if you'd gotten Osama bin Laden. Uh, and so the chances of missing uh, and if you missed, uh, the target would almost certainly disappear. Uh, and even the fact that hitting him wouldn't leave you with any uh, evidence uh, eventually steered them to the SEAL option, which was before the we get to the chose. Before we get to the SEAL option, Mark, the, the existence of the STM, or the Small Tactical Munition, certainly uh, uh, not broadly reported. Is this new for the finish? Yeah, I do. actually, in honesty, I think uh, uh, Peter Bergen in his book, Manhunt, did say that they considered um, using a small tactical missile. Uh, I think I uh, really was the first to kind of uh, be, to be able to discuss that in more detail, and I think um, I was surprised uh, to learn that ultimately the choice became whether to shoot this little missile or whether to go in with the seals. I think prior to then, and it's been mostly reported that the option, the other option was a bombing one. Now, I have to, I have, to have a little aside uh, about your writing and, and ask whether, uh, whether Haas Cartwright, the Air Force general who uh, oversees the drones and, and has the STM at his disposal, his name is so resonant of sort of your old image of the Air Force general. Were there sort of inter-service rivalries at play between what might happen between the Navy and SEAL Team 6 or what the Air Force might be able to do that you detected? Absolutely none, as far as I can tell. Uh, Admiral McRaven, when he took over JSOC, uh, essentially divvied up the forces uh, so that the Army's Special Ops Unit Delta Force was functioning out of Iraq primarily, and the SEALs uh, were functioning up in Afghanistan. And you'll recall, Josh, that the uh, Marines essentially uh, took over uh, most of the uh, fighting in Afghanistan for a period of time. It was during that period that... Uh, you know, the SEAL uh, teams were shifted up in that region. So the commander, the ground commander, uh, who led the SEAL team into Abbottabad had actually firsthand experience conducting raids inside of uh, Pakistan. So it, it was an obvious choice. And, it's the, you know, the consideration of whether to fire a missile or to send in the SEALs 
was really, uh, you know, based more on the advantages and disadvantages posed by uh, those two courses. I, I don't believe, I never caught any hint of, uh, of, you know, the rivalry between the branches playing a role. So you have a new president uh, who had spent two years in the U.S. Senate and before that a state senator and then a constitutional lawyer and community organizer. Barack Obama, I'm a Democrat and I support him. But uh, he had to get to know people like Bill McRaven. Can you sketch out how the relationship between Obama and McRaven seemed to evolve and, and flourish as they thought about the options of sending the SEAL team in? Yeah, in fact, I asked the president about this, and you know, he told me he had met McRaven once uh, on a tour of uh, uh, Iraq when he was a senator, uh, and that General Petraeus, who at that point was, the, was commanding the war in Iraq, uh, invited uh, Senator Obama, then Senator Obama, to a dinner, and he uh, made uh, Admiral McRaven's acquaintance at that point. And he really only got to know him well, he said, when they began planning out options for this raid, although he had had dealings with him from afar, um, you know, in his first uh, year and a half in office, because General, or rather Admiral McRaven was commanding uh, JSOC uh, at that time. And the president, as you know, Josh, now is presented almost daily with options for targeting um, uh, terrorists around the world. So part of that, you know, process of weighing whether or not to attack involved uh, conferring with Admiral um, McRaven. But it wasn't until they began meeting personally to map out what it would mean uh, to send a SEAL team into uh, Pakistan that he... Uh, was dealing with Admiral McRaven on an almost daily basis, and his his um, admiration for uh, McRaven grew uh, during that time. And you know, Admiral McRaven projects a great deal of uh, warranted confidence in himself and in his men, and I think that ultimately is what um, sort of tipped the balance for President Obama. He had developed a real strong confidence in the admiral and when McRaven told him Mr. President we can we can do this uh, he believed him so the picture that we all know of May 1st 2011 is of uh, President Obama in a, a barracuda jacket sort of against the wall Hillary Clinton with her hand to her mouth my great dear friend Tony Blinken sort of craning his his head uh, from the back of the room that's what Pete Sousa shot in the situation room but the issues facing uh, Admiral McRaven uh, halfway around the world were very different what are some of the the snafus that happened after the SEAL team left Pakistan and Rudabadabad? Uh they you know everything went smoothly until the very beginning <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know the uh, everybody is there in that room which was actually you know, one of the little conference rooms off of the main situation room they had originally tried to keep the president uh, out of the uh, side room because uh, they felt you know there might be criticism that he was trying to micromanage the um, uh, the mission uh, but the, when he came in and sat down no one was about to say uh, he needed to leave <laughs> and at, at that point uh, they all knew they all knew the outline of the mission they knew the Blackhawks were supposed to move into position over the compound rope men into it and then move off and land outside of the compound walls and so all they knew at the moment that picture was taken the famous picture was that one of the Blackhawks had rather unexpectedly landed in the middle of the compound uh, that was you know something had happened and they did not know 
what. And in fact, you know, they didn't even know that the Black Hawk had crashed at that point because they're looking at a feed from uh, a sentinel high overhead, and all they see is that the helicopter is down inside the compound. Uh, they didn't know whether that, you know, they had for some reason decided to land there or whether it had crashed. And so they were all sitting there, and you can see the tension on their faces, uh, waiting to hear what happened. And, the, and frankly, Admiral McRaven was in a similar position. He had the advantage, though, of being in direct communication with men on that helicopter. So he understood much more quickly uh, that, that they had been forced to land, that it was a controlled crash. Uh, it took a few minutes before he ascertained that no one had been hurt. And at that point, those men on that helicopter are busy basically redrawing their plan for assaulting the, uh, the house because the first plan, as they often do, had already gone out the window. The result of the raid is a success. You, the way you painted, uh, a, a lot less uh, drama maybe than, than uh, Mr. Brennan painted as a firefight. Uh, yeah. President Obama goes into the East Room and tells the American people this. Tonight, I can report to the American people and to the world that the United States has conducted an operation that killed Osama bin Laden, the leader of al-Qaeda. The aftermath of that, Mark, you, you talk about the way administration officials uh, unveiled the uh, details of the raid, and you call out Brennan a little bit. Uh, but what you, you also wrote in Foreign Policy a few weeks ago about some of the major misconceptions about the raid. What are some of those misconceptions? Well, one of them that arose right there, and since we think about poor John Brennan, we might as well talk about him here. Yeah. But, uh, you know, John Brennan is a guy who had been pursuing bin Laden for almost 15 years. He, he worked, uh, uh, you know, during the Clinton administration, he was in the CIA, and I think he was based in Saudi Arabia. He had been involved in the hunt for bin Laden for, you know, a large portion of his professional career, and I think, understandably, had developed a high level of disdain for the man. And so he, uh, one of the things he did was characterize uh, bin Laden as living a life of luxury uh, in a million-dollar compound in the suburbs of uh, Islamabad. And that conveyed uh, an impression that was just false. Uh, you know, bin Laden was uh, many things, mass murderer among them, but no one can accuse him of ever having lived a good life. Uh, the guy was a uh, determined ascetic uh, his entire life, and here's someone who, uh, living in some of the warmest climates in the world, had always eschewed uh, air conditioning and, uh, and refrigerators. And he was holed up with, his, with three of his wives and about a dozen children on the upper two floors of that house for five years and essentially never left except to walk in circles around the vegetable garden uh they were uh you know living a lifestyle that could be more uh accurately described as imprisonment uh and so you know to characterize him as uh, sort of living uh this uh cushy um you know suburban life was uh, just it was I think it reflected Brennan's desire to make his enemy look as bad as he could <laughs> make him look. Some of the other misconceptions, you said that uh, the administration was not as leaky as they might have let on. It was very tough for you to sort of reconstruct these moments. Yeah, I laugh, you know, when I read about these accusations that the 
Obama administration is leaking, uh, eager to tell reporters and leaking information about the raid, because here I am uh, working determinedly for more than a year uh, to get access to some of these people. And I never did, frankly, get access to everyone I hoped to. Uh, but I did eventually get to sit down with the president. It took um, uh, nearly a year uh, before I was able to get that arranged. And I'm grateful for the help that I got, but no one in the White House lifted a finger uh, to help me, uh, to my chagrin, uh, talking to anybody in the military or, or the CIA. I had to pursue those uh, uh, opportunities uh, along my own, uh, using my own devious methods. Uh, so, you know, the idea that somehow uh, the Obama administration is, uh, is leaking like a sieve is... Uh, from my perspective, disappointingly false. One fascinating part of your reporting that I don't think I'd seen anywhere else is the point that you bring up that actually the Saudi Arabians could have brought their their boy home, uh, Osama bin Laden from Saudi Arabia. What happened there? Yeah, the uh, you know, as a courtesy, the administration contacted uh, Saudi Arabia and they said, well, we have this we told them we have this plan to, you know, give him a Muslim burial, burial it, and, and plunk him in the uh, Arabian Sea, uh, but we want to give you the option of uh, accepting his remains uh, if you choose. And, and the, uh, the minister from Saudi Arabia said, no, we, we like your plan. Mark Bowden, the author of The Finish, The Killing of Osama Bin Laden, also author, of course, of Black Hawk Down, one of my favorite writers. You're listening to him on Sirius XM Channel 124, Polyoptics. I'm Josh King. So moving past the killing of Osama Bin Laden, Mark Bowden, you know, the fog of war was very evident in your dissection of Operation Gothic Serpent in Mogadishu. The fog of war was also tagged as a reason for confusion about what happened just a few weeks ago on September 11th in Benghazi. I want to play a clip from U.N. Ambassador Susan Rice about her quick take or her view of what happened in Benghazi and get your sense of of what a longer story might reveal about Benghazi. In Benghazi, a small number of people came to the embassy to, or to the consulate rather, uh, to, to replicate the, the sort of uh, challenge that, that was posed in, in Cairo. And then as that unfolded, it seems to have been uh, hijacked, let us say, by uh, some individual uh, clusters of extremists. Major issue at the debate the other night, Mark. What's your? Are you planning to go to Benghazi and give us another uh, of your great books? <laughs> no, I have no no plans uh, to do that. Um, but uh, you know, listening to that comment by Susan Rice, what that says to me is um, she's doing her best to explain what happened. It turns out she, uh, like a lot of people, were mistaken. The accounts that I've read, uh, from what I've heard, the uh, local militia that launched this attack in Benghazi uh, did so in retaliation for this uh, movie. And of course, this uh, little trailer or movie, whatever you call it, had instigated the uh, riots in, uh, uh, in front of the embassy in Cairo. Um, you know, so I think her, she made the incorrect assumption, apparently, that the uh, event in Benghazi began as a um, uh, demonstration, and then and only and then was she put it was hijacked by militants. In fact, it appears now as though it was an out and out um, militant attack. But the connection to the movie, uh, you know, was there. 
so I, I think that's all that's uh, that's going on there. And I think we're in the middle of a very heated political season, and clearly uh, the Republicans are trying to damage uh, the president's uh, foreign policy stature uh, because it is something that you know they've had very little leverage on. I think. Uh, during this campaign. So, uh, you know, we're in the final weeks and they're grasping at straws. Speaking of movies, Mark Bowden, in 2006, you wrote Guests of the Ayatollah. What sent you just a few years ago in pursuit of what was a 25-year-old story or so? And what do you think of the unsung roles of CIA operatives like Tony Mendez, as portrayed by Ben Affleck in, in the recent movie release, Argo? Well, I love that movie, Argo, and I'm delighted to see uh, Tony Mendez getting the recognition that he deserves. I mean, there's a lots of people, uh, you know, who do courageous work on behalf of this country uh, who are never recognized and uh, who people never hear about. He's, he's one of them, and so in his case, thankfully, uh, people are uh, kind of giving him the uh, uh, kudos that he deserves. You know, what sent me to, the, to do that story, Josh, was just that, we were, um, this was not long after uh, uh, 9-11 that I uh, decided to write the book about the Iran hostage crisis. And to me, having, you know, uh, started my career as a newspaper reporter, as it happened on, this, on the very day that the embassy had been taken in Tehran, uh, having, you know, been a reporter and lived through in a newsroom that whole uh, uh, 444 days, it had you know, stayed with me as a uh, as a major event in modern times, and it was the first time that I ever recalled hearing sort of the storyline or the narrative of Islamist extremists. I had never heard the expression "the great Satan" before. I had never really looked at uh, the world through that lens. You know, Islamist extremists who viewed both the Soviet Union and the United States as evil empires. Um, it was a perspective that was new. And I think that when the attacks happened on 9-11, you know, it, it seemed to me as though the war that was developing uh, you know, for the United States was against this concept. And where did this concept originate in my experience? It, it originated in the takeover of the embassy in Tehran. And so for those reasons, I remember sitting now with my publisher and saying, look, the next book I want to write is about the Iran hostage crisis, and he was just bewildered. He said, well, wh why? <laughs> would you wanna, there's so much going on right now. Why would you want to go back 25 years? And I said, well, I think that's where, you know, this, in a sense, this all started. And, and it's, it's a great story. And I had looked around a little bit and learned that even though there had been a lot of uh, books about the Iran hostage crisis, no, no one like me <clears throat> had gone back and written a, kind of a definitive account of what really went on. So I saw it as, a, as an opportunity, and I was motivated, as I usually am, just by my own curiosity. I mean, you know, and also long sideburns, <laughs> wide, wide collars, and, and, and uh, make for great movies when they finally get onto screen. You mentioned your time as a reporter, Mark, and now, thanks to the patronage of people like Graydon Carter, James Bennett, and David Remnick, great journalism continues to thrive. But if you look back at your career at the Philadelphia Inquirer and what's happening to uh, the newspaper I grew up with, like the Boston Globe, what's your sense of, of where journalism is heading after this election and, and the various forms that it will continue to exist, whether it's 
writing for these magazines or, I mean, we saw Newsweek uh, announced this week that it would no longer publish at the end of the year. Yeah, you know, clearly the direction of all uh, print media is um, digital. And there are great advantages there. Uh, I mean, the most basic advantage for someone like me is that uh, up until, you know, fairly recent years in my career, I was always fighting a struggle to get more space. Uh, you know, I always wanted to tell a story at a little bit more length than the newspaper was prepared to accommodate, even though I would have to say the Inquirer was famous for uh, giving you know, reporters lots of room to tell their stories. So on the Internet, obviously, there's a, uh, an infinite amount of space, which is both a, a good and a bad thing. But from my perspective, uh, that and the ability to combine um, multimedia to give uh, readers access to source material maps, graphics, and whatnot makes uh, the Internet uh, really a, a better tool uh, for journalism than uh, uh, paper and ink. What disturbs me about the transition is the uh, dissolution of these um, fantastic uh, journalistic institutions, which, um, like the uh, Philadelphia Inquirer, like the Boston Globe, uh, you know, which created a, uh, a culture of professionalism and uh, a uh, dedication to accuracy and, and fair-minded reporting. Uh, I think we are devolving on the Internet and on cable TV into a sort of fractious, uh, partisan-based form of journalism, very much more like what existed in the 18th and the 19th century. Right. And uh, I think that leaves um, American citizens in a quandary because it you know if all information is being spun uh who do you believe uh, and and i think it leads to the kind of extreme partisanship that we're experiencing in the country i think it leads to a kind of bewildered citizenry where you know there's really no source of information that's uh uh trustworthy so my hope is that as we go into this digital age that you will find these institutions reconstituted in some form uh, on the internet, and the standards that I grew up with in journalism will um, prevail again. I think there's an inherent value in that. Whether or not you, we can, someone can figure out how to monetize it remains to be seen. Well, here at Polyoptics on POTUS on SiriusXM, we try and go straight down the middle, and you've helped us immeasurably do that. Mark Bowden, author of uh, The Finish, The Killing of Osama Bin Laden. You can read a big excerpt of it in the November issue of Vanity Fair. Man, you are one of my genuine literary idols. Thanks so much for spending some time with me today. Thank you, Josh. I appreciate it. Well, excuse me for a few minutes as I get over my hero worship of Mark Bowden. The guy really did uh, write the definitive book in Black Hawk Down that set me on this path toward absorbing as much narrative nonfiction as I possibly could. Let's go to a totally different generation from a guy who's been uh, in the front lines of reporting for decades, Mark Bowden, to a person who's just spent two years uh, really on the staff of The New Yorker and is beginning to emerge as an incredibly funny talent. I read the magazine uh, religiously every week, and I was so thrilled to see a piece that he had written for The New Yorker called Conversations with a Teleprompter, and it hit so home on a view that I have in the campaign. Welcome to Polyoptics, Nathaniel Stein. Hi, Josh. Thanks so much for having me. Just take me to the moment where you sit, where you were watching your TV screen and you said, this is something I ought to write about, and how did you write about it, and what did you conclude? 
Well, I was struck watching the, watching Bill Clinton's speech at the DNC the whole time. You know, like a lot of people, I was very impressed with it. But the idea to write about it actually didn't really hit me until the next day when I saw a lot of people did side-by-side comparisons of the remarks that were prepared and the remarks that he delivered. And, you know, I wasn't the only one to notice the remarks as uh, delivered were almost twice as long. And I thought it would be interesting to sort of do an analysis of, of what was different between the two. Bring me through some of them, because I could pick it apart, but uh, basically what you're seeing is that, and and this has come out in some of the reporting, that President Clinton, who I worked for for six years, started to think for months ahead about the speech, uh, had a very long text, promised David Axelrod had come in about 25 minutes, got in a room with people like John Podesta, Joe Lockhart, and uh, cut it down. Uh, from sort of a 45-minute text to a 25-minute text, but then somewhere between his hotel room and the the arena where the Democratic National Convention was being held, he said to himself, I'm going to put that stuff back in with a little bit of flourish. <laughs> yes, he certainly did, and I think it uh, certainly didn't hurt uh, Obama in the end that he did. Um, part, of, you know, part of it is just that he puts in these folksy flourishes, like he'll, he'll say, this one's a real doozy, y'all got to listen to this. And he just sort of sprinkles those in, and it makes it seem, you know, more extemporaneous um, and, and sort of more friendly. And uh, he also adds a lot of detail, like a lot of wonky detail, you know, statistics about the economy that he just apparently knows off the top of his head. But what impressed me even more than that was that I saw instances where he actually sort of improved the speech from, from a speech-making uh, perspective. He... Um, he just put things in a, in a more rhetorically effective way, which was the most impressive of all those those changes. Yeah, I mean, for instance, the way you saw his prepared for as delivered transcript, it says, when times are tough, constant conflict may be good politics, but in the real world, cooperation works better. Let's hear how it actually came out in Charlotte. Why is this true? Why does cooperation work better than constant conflict? Because nobody's right all the time, and a broken clock is right twice a day. And he goes on and on, Nathaniel, and you really picked up on this. And and what I'm seeing on the campaign trail is that both President Obama and Governor Romney are often using teleprompters at all of their rallies and staying fairly close to their script. And the news media is almost complicit by having their cameras zoomed in enough so that you don't see that what they're saying is being broadcast onto two glass panes for, so that they can look left and look right and mm-hmm. appear that they're speaking extemporaneously. But if the camera only pulled back a little bit more, you would see that, that these guys really are just talking to a script and their their relationship more is more with the glass than the crowd beyond. Yes. Yeah, that's interesting. And I wonder, you know, whether it would help or hurt them to be a little looser. I mean, I'm not convinced, you know, Obama, I think, has a lot of uh, talents. I'm not convinced that he can match Clinton in this regard. I mean, he's often sort of needled for depending on the teleprompter. I, I don't know how bad of a thing that is in a president, but it's sort of maybe true. He, he's, he's better when he's reading. I think that certainly was true of George W. Bush, who was often ridiculed for, for his remarks off the cuff, but he was pretty good when he had a teleprompter in front of him. Uh, this strikes me as almost a unique talent with, with Clinton. I mean, he just... Um, he just doesn't need the teleprompter, and if anything, it holds him back. Yeah, I mean, it, it serves as like a, a visual notepad, but not really a script. And another thing that was interesting about Charlotte, if you looked at what happened in Tampa 
and in Charlotte, a lot of the speakers were sort of instructed to look dead ahead at the lens as if you're going right into people's living rooms. But if you look back at the tape of President Clinton, he was using the teleprompter to keep him guided, but all, but also looking so much around the the stadium and rarely, if ever, looking directly into that lens. So it got a sense that, you know, he may be talking to 17,000 people in the arena, but what he is really doing is sort of sitting on a tree stump in Arkansas somewhere telling stories. Yes, it, I didn't really pick up on that at the time, but that certainly uh, that certainly was the, was the impression. So a lot of the work that you're doing at The New Yorker these days, Nathaniel, is sort of uh, the Shouts and Murmurs blog. Uh, tell us how sort of you came to The New Yorker and, and what your assignments have been so far and, and where you get your humor from. Yeah, well, I, um, I've been at The New Yorker for about two years. Uh, most, of, most of the writing I've, I've done, as you, as you correctly pointed out, has been uh, humor. And, um, you know, I, I sort of, you know, some of it political, some not, and I sort of look for humor wherever I can. A lot of it has been, of course, lately political. But then, you know, this moment struck me, and, you know, it didn't seem particularly funny, the Clinton thing. You know, I'm sure nobody found the piece particularly funny. But, um, it, uh, you know, it just struck me as something interesting to write about, and I hope to sort of try to write more, you know, any, any interesting kind of things that strike me that aren't necessarily, you know, uh, sources of humor. Your writing work uh, in college beforehand, was that long-form journalistic, or where did that sort of tend toward? No, it, it was mostly humor also. I was in uh, the humor magazine in college and um, spent maybe too much of my time just trying to sort of write stupid uh, humor pieces that were in no way um, uh, edifying about um, anything worthwhile. But, uh, you know, so I don't know if that uh, prepared me too well for the world of journalism, but... Um, it, it, it did prepare me well for making, uh, you know, stupid jokes. What kind of inspiration were have people like John Stewart and Stephen Colbert been for you and your generation? I think they've been um, a, a, a big inspiration. I mean, um, you know, they, they're first of all they're obviously incredibly funny, which is sort of when I'm making political humor, I am first and foremost just trying to be funny. I'm, I'm looking at what strikes me as absurd, what strikes me as funny. How can I sort of twisted or exaggerated, and I'm not really trying to um, make a political message. And, uh, you know, I think with, with those guys, they sort of are, you know, they're, they're doing both and in a way that I'm not uh, really necessarily trying to do. But they're certainly um, inspirations as, uh, you know, such funny people. So I'm looking at the piece you posted on August 9th, probably right before uh Governor Romney appointed Paul Ryan, and the lead of your piece, My Running Mate, is absolutely the most important thing I want in a running mate is someone who is ready to be just a heartbeat away. He must be 100% ready at any moment to let me be president if I wake up from my coma. (laughs) I mean, your irony is great. And, And so you must sort of look at the way sort of the news cycle unfolds, and you said, how can I sort of twist it back on itself? Yes, that's exactly right. And, um... You know, with that one, it's, that one's actually interesting, because when I was writing that, I was sort of, I don't know if this came across to you, but I was trying to just sort of be absurdist about this. Like, it wasn't necessarily Romney thinking about picking Rangmaid. It was just this absurd, uh, crazy person, you know, who just existed in my brain thinking about what his running mate would be. And so, in, in some ways, I think that that speaks to my approach, which is to sort of just find the humor where I can and not necessarily worry about, um, you know, making a political point. I mean, absolutely. And, and 
you you go back into the archives of every good debate zinger uh, in your piece for October 2nd, Practice Makes Perfect, and you sort of create a dialogue between Governor Romney and his speech preppers uh, in which he, he rolls out uh, words like, um, Governor, should we schedule some debate practice this afternoon? Governor, uh, there you go again. Hi, yes, that's great. Let's say the conference room at four. There you go again. Uh, yeah, but but don't you think we should practice at least a little? Where's the beef? Um, and so you pull that out. Were you surprised based on sort of your impression of your old governor from Massachusetts, the way he actually came out and, and sort of clocked uh, President Obama over the head? Yes, I, I was shocked. And I think, um, you know, as a lot of people were, I was very surprised. And, you know, it seems like that may have been part of their strategy to get everyone expecting these zingers. And then um, he came out and he looked uh, he looked good. I mean, I, you know, I'm not personally the biggest fan of his. Um, but, uh, he, you know, to his credit, he, he did a very good job of sort of not relying on zingers and, and seeming to be pretty, pretty likable and confident. So give us a little preview. Three weeks left or less in the campaign. Anything else we'll see from Nathaniel Stein before votes are cast? Well, that's a good question. I don't know. I mean, I'm just on the lookout for, um, for you know, the crazy things that no doubt will happen. Um, you got any ideas for me? I'll let you know offline. Okay, great. Nathaniel, thanks so much for joining us for a few minutes on Polyoptics. Really appreciate it and really love reading your stuff. Thanks so much, Josh. It was great to be here. So, as promised, former White House Communications Director under President George W. Bush, Kevin Sully Sullivan, joins us from Ground Zero in this year's campaign, Florida, site of the debate on Monday night in Boca Raton. Kevin, welcome back to Polyoptics. Thanks for having me, Josh. So, when we last talked last week, you were calling the vice presidential debate as an edge for Paul Ryan over Joe Biden. What was your take on Hofstra? I would say Hofstra was a uh, close to being a tie, but with the edge going to the president. He, he definitely got the momentum back and accomplished what he did. I thought Romney had some good moments, but the governor also missed a few opportunities. Uh, did well, you know, kept, didn't, didn't fall back uh, much, but I think I would give the edge to the president, which means that Boca is the rubber match, the tiebreaker, you know, the consensus. The thriller in Manila. Won. That's right. The thriller in Manila at, that uh, President won round, uh, the Governor Romney won round one, the President won round two. And, and, you know, the debates seem to be more consequential this time than, than in, than in uh, recent presidential campaign history. So the stakes are pretty high Monday night. I want to hear a little bit from Hofstra and then offer a comment and, and see what you think. Governor, if you want to reply yeah, just I, I quickly I to do, this, I please. Certainly do. I, I, I think it's interesting. The President just said something, which, which is that on the day after the attack, he went to the Rose Garden and said that this was an act of terror. That's what I said. You said in the Rose Garden, the day after the attack, it was an act of terror. It was not a spontaneous demonstration. Is that what you're saying? Please proceed, Governor. I, I, I want to make sure we get that for the record, because it took the President 14 days before he called the attack in Benghazi an act of terror. Get the transcript. It, 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 he did, in, in fact, sir. So let me, let me call it an act of Can terror. Can you say that a little Garden. louder, Candy? <laughs> He did call it an act of terror. It did as well take it did as well uh, take uh, two weeks or so uh, for the whole idea of there being a riot out there about this tape. Please walk into my trap, Governor uh, Kevin Sullivan. Here's my theory of these debates and why I do think they are consequential. Uh, I'd love to get your thoughts. 
there are three basic formats. Uh, there is the standing at a podium, 10 feet apart, where most of the viewers, the 50, 60, 70, 80 million people watching at home, are seeing a split screen, and they are looking at this very clinically, one face against the other, almost the same image for 90 minutes. Then what you saw in uh, Kentucky were two combatants sitting down, meet the press style, with Martha Raddatz. And so you could the, the you could see a lot more of the action in a single frame. You didn't have to do the split screen. And the, and in Denver, you saw Governor Romney so calm, cool, and collected behind his podium. There was going to be no movement. And they show up in Hofstra in the town meeting format. And not a lot of as many questions were asked by quote unquote real people as Candy Crowley might have hoped. But the way that the pool shoots that kind of an encounter, two men, stools, walking around, the ability to do two shots with the speaker in crisp focus and the person watching a little blurred away, you, it, the, the actual physical movement becomes so much more important. And I think this was not only a place where rhetorically President Obama might have gotten the edge and might have been able to uh, get the factual difference in situations like uh, the the timeline with Benghazi, but also the media production itself played to President Obama's strengths and was not did not allow Governor Romney to be the cool, calm, and collected self he was in Denver. What'd you think? Yeah, I think the format played better for President Obama, and it's interesting. You know, we had a nice conversation a fascinating one with Mike McCurry about the debates last week here on Polyoptics. I, I would be surprised if the debate commission does not revisit this format a little bit. There was an awful lot of, you know, kind of bickering and wondering whose turn it was to talk and confusion about whose turn it was to talk, and it's not fair that he's now talking. Uh, at the end of the night, the president had a three-minute edge, which is not the end of the world, but probably more than, than you would like to see in terms of one, one candidate getting more airtime than the other. Uh, so I, I do think that the roaming the stage, you know, thing was interesting and probably uh, favored the president. It'll be interesting Monday to see if Bob Schieffer goes to Libya first. And I think the coin toss does matter uh, Monday night in Boca, that, that if Governor Romney gets to go first and if Bob Schieffer of CBS News asks a Libya-related question, it does give the governor a chance to another crack at what he... You know, handling it better than he did the other night. The point that he was trying to make was, you know, he said he didn't say it. Of course, the president did say it. The point was the president said it was a terror attack, almost in passing, and yeah. then undid that by or he used the, the plural, of, which you couldn't describe. You might not necessarily ascribe to that. He said or terror attacks. I can't exactly. remember exactly. And, and so, you know, the governor could have acknowledged that you did mention it in passing. But look what Susan Rice did on the Sunday shows, and look at this, and look at that, and of course. We now have new information from the from the CIA that the Libya desk had had flagged for the White House the next day that there had been some planning activity that they had picked up. So clearly, the White House knew more than it was saying in, in the in the immediate aftermath, and that's the point Governor Romney was trying to drive, and ended up not doing it very artfully. And maybe we'll have another crack at it on Monday. Well, Hofstra did seem like a. Uh, the height of Marvin Hagler versus Thomas Hitman Hearns, the way they both came out at each other. And, and I think that uh, President Obama's feet were moving a lot faster. You heard 
uh, l- l- later this week uh, in New York, trading in their business suits for white tie and tails at the Al Smith dinner. President Obama sort of acknowledges with a good degree of humor uh, the fact that he might have turned the tables from a disappointing prior performance. Let's hear it. This is the third time that uh, Governor Romney and I have met recently. Uh, As some of you may have noticed, uh, I had a lot more energy in our second debate. Uh, I felt really well rested after the nice long nap I had in the first debate. So then he does Daily's show with Jon Stewart uh, in New York and Kevin Sullivan disarming with humor and the fact that these guys, and we'll hear a little bit from Governor Romney in a second, were able to put aside the the bickering and rancor that they seemed to show for each other in Long Island when they got into Manhattan. As we've talked before, I, I do much prefer a campaign where people can can slice at each other with humor rather than hatred. There's not enough of that. Obviously, the heat has been turned way up uh, in, you know, in, in, in recent years, and, and it's missing from our political discourse. Humor is the great equalizer. It is disarming. It can be self-deprecating, as you just heard in that clip with President Obama. And, and you know, we need more of it. President Bush, uh, you know, uh, frequently got high marks for his ability to poke fun at himself, even if it meant uh, that he knew Japs would be coming from the late night uh, comics. Uh, he was more concerned with you know, uh, appealing to that person that he was with, the audience that he was with, connecting with those people, even if it meant a shot from Jimmy Kimmel or David Letterman. And I think, we, you know, we need, we need more of that. Let's hear a little bit from Governor Romney, uh, also at the Waldorf Astoria uh, at the Al Smith dinner. The president pulled Pope Benedict aside to share some advice on how to deal with his critics. He said, look, Holy Father, whatever the problem is, just blame it on Pope John Paul II. <laughs> The old riff of blaming your predecessor, what he's done plenty of times with President George W. Bush. Uh, you're in the front lines of, uh, of the campaign right now in Florida. You live there, Kevin Sullivan. This is going to come down to Florida, uh, Ohio, maybe even New Hampshire. Despite what is happening at these major national events and whether you declare edges for Ryan or Obama or Romney at debates, what do you see happening as the dynamic in the battlegrounds? Well, you know, in Florida, definitely a jump ball at this point. Still hotly contested, could go either way. Governor Romney, I think, has made uh, inroads, has has gained uh, on the president, and needs to close the sale here in the final uh, couple of weeks. Uh, you know, he's going to spend a lot of time in the state. The, the uh, uh, you know, it's interesting. We had some visitors from Kansas this week, and they had, of course, seen no political ads. In, they are in not their in home play. State. Right, none. They hadn't seen a one, and they're in Florida for three or four days, and they just can't believe the volume and the and and the uh, and the temperature level of, of those ads. And and that's how it's going to be. It's going to come down to to uh, to election day. And uh, you know, I, I would say that I think uh, Governor Romney has an excellent chance to to put Florida into the win column. Let's put aside for a second uh, what's happening on the campaign. Kevin Sullivan of Kevin Sullivan Communications, one of your key areas is uh, advising on message and crisis in the area of sports. And nowhere th- was there a bigger crisis than in sports and what has happened to Lance Armstrong since uh, the U.S. Anti-Doping Agency came out with its report and the fallout for it. Um, what's your view of that story? And, and was there any way, was could there have been any better way for Lance Armstrong to handle it? The thing that was most interesting to me about these revelations was the Livestrong CEO, Doug Ullman, who's a, a, a terrific 
uh, administrator of that charity, which has obviously done a lot of good for a lot of people. And, and Doug came out uh, in the last uh, week or so and, and pointed to uh, double the normal contributions that, that Livestrong would, would typically get at, at this time of year. So clearly, the people who there are a, a large number of people who don't care what Lance did or didn't do as an athlete, but they celebrate his uh, enormous contribution. If you think about what athletes have done in, in their foundations, and you think about the Michael Jordans and the Tiger Woodses and the, the Muhammad Ali's, the legends, the biggest names, you think of entertainers. There are, it's a very short list uh, of, of celebrities who have done in philanthropy what Lance Armstrong has done. And in fact, people don't realize he started Livestrong and began this crusade before he ever won a Tour de France. So it appears that the goodwill built up in a certain community is at least uh, saving the day for Livestrong and for that effort. And I think right now that's probably what's most important to Lance. Yeah, I mean, I think if you are watching football every Sunday, you're seeing October every every player on the pitch is re, is wearing pink in honor of the Susan G. Komen Foundation and supporting breast cancer. What's Again, what's been your take of how the Komen Foundation has recovered from the problems of last year? You know, the great thing about our society and the media cycle being so sped up is you can get over, uh, you know, you, damage control means a whole new thing now. You can get past almost anything. And, you know, the Susan G. Komen thing, you think, I don't think anybody's thinking about that, or very few people are thinking about that when they see those pink cleats and wristbands. And, and when you get on a Delta Airlines flight and you see the pink you know, being worn on the flight and the pink lemonade being being sold for as a fundraiser and all the the pink that you see. No one right now is thinking about Planned Parenthood. They're thinking about all the good that Susan G. Komen uh, and Nancy Brinker have, have, have done there. So, uh, you know, I think that's where the focus, uh, you know, will be now with Lance stepping away from the spotlight. And, and uh, you know, he'll focus his attention quietly, I think, behind the scenes on continuing the fight, uh, you know, to help people who have been diagnosed with cancer. Well, Kevin Sullivan, for all the past athletic feats that we have to now question, what I just hope doesn't happen is that we find out uh, in some time in the future that Felix Baumgartner, who <laughs> stepped out of a capsule 24 miles out, was somehow picked up by a helicopter uh, about a mile after he jumped out and gently brought back to Earth instead of this amazing feat. I'd never some kind seen of anything. Some Rosie Ruiz. Uh... Exactly, a Rosie Ruiz moment. <laughs> I'd never seen anything like this. What were you thinking as you watched uh, the replay of that or that live? Yeah, I think all that Felix was on was Red Bull. And the thing that struck <laughs> me, you know, Red Bull had, had invested, you know, millions in this for a number of years and obviously got an enormous amount of publicity value and news value, and I'm sure it was worth every penny. Absolutely. Uh, I, I couldn't believe the fact that, I, I, that that someone would even think about undertaking something like this, and, and uh, you know, that's why they call him Fearless Felix. <laughs> the unbelievable piece of polyoptics. Kevin Sullivan, get back to work. We'll catch you soon, and uh, thanks for coming on this week. Thanks for having me, Josh. That's it for another edition of Polyoptics. You hear us each Saturday on Sirius XM Channel 124, POTUS, Politics of the United States. Missed any previous episode? Find them all on polyoptics.com and follow us on Twitter, at Polyoptics. Keep your eyes on the visual, think about how it moves you, and we'll talk about it next week. Thanks for listening. I'm Josh King, and you're on POTUS. POTUS.